0: Welcome to this episode of Another World is Potable. My name is Peter Bloom, and get ready to emancipate your mind and radically expand your imagination as we present all the most exciting and revolutionary possibilities of our times, both locally and globally. I hope you enjoy it, and as always, solidarity today, tomorrow, and forever. Um, I'm with a very special guest, uh, and we're going to be talking about a couple things, uh, both the activism he's involved in and also the amazing kind of theories and work he's doing right now that I think are so incredibly relevant. And, I, you know, I, I think everyone's going to be as interested in them, hopefully, as I am. Um, I'm here with Dr. Tanner Murleys. Um, he's a member of the Socialist Project, and he is one of the key people thinking about uh, what he and others have called media imperialism. So, Tanner, thank you so much for joining the show.
1: Thank you so much, Peter. It's a treat and pleasure to be here, and I really appreciate that kind and warm introduction.
0: Well, I'm going to ask you the first question that I ask pretty much everyone, but I always think it's so interesting, um, which is what, you know, you you do a lot of activism and you do a lot of, you know, pretty, pretty important, I would say, praxis based theory, Um, but what is your intellectual and political background? Um, And especially for something that I've been so impressed with as we'll get to in terms of media imperialism, which is, you know, simultaneously an incredibly sophisticated understanding of development, an understanding of what separates culture and media's place in it. And then also, you know, some really serious economic issues about, you know, who's producing this, how is it being produced and what does that speak to? So you have to have a pretty varied background to cover this. Um, So what <laughs> is your yeah, intellectual background?
1: Um, that's, thank you. I, I think um, I'll talk a little bit about my personal sort of political intellectual background and then sort of move through my experience as a university student up and sort of to starting graduate studies um, in the early 2000s and then sort of move from there on to what I've been doing politically since then. But I mean, I, I grew up and I guess what you could call something of a border town with the united states um i grew up in a small working class town called port coburn ontario that was you know about 25 minutes down the highway from um the u.s canadian peace bridge uh with buffalo new york um i was raised by my my, my dearest um mother who worked in the public health care system for about 38 years and my hometown's economic base was um, the International Nickel Company of Canada that, that has a pretty sordid track record of, you know, dispossessing indigenous people, extracting minerals uh, for, for, for nickel refinement and sale. Often that went into sort of the arms industries of Canada and other countries. Um, but nonetheless, my hometown was, you know, it's a working class town, uh, a unionized town for the most part but most of the militant sort of worker struggles ended around the late 70s at precisely the time I was born. And so in my teenage years, um, I was quite apolitical. I mean, I was basically working minimum wage jobs since I was uh, 13, you know, being a dishwasher, a line cook, a server, a video store clerk, a bartender. And I didn't really think too much about politics. And moreover, I mean, I might even been Uh, tacitly conservative. I mean, I I didn't really sort of identify as being political. Um, I didn't really have a way to map politics at the time. But to give you a sense of sort of where my media was coming from, it was coming from across the border. I mean, I recall watching Fox, Fox TV all the time. I'd watch The Simpsons and then Fox News. And that was really the sort of media apparatus that was shaping, I think, the way I was thinking about a lot of things at the time. And, of course, we had in Canada the CBC, our national public broadcaster, that was good sort of centrist, liberal kind of coverage of the world. But uh, when I was younger, I'd mostly be tuning into that to watch Walt Disney movies. And so, you know, my my, my experience growing up was was very much one immersed in a mediascape that was not Canadian um, and that was very much being produced and sold by Hollywood um i remember like really being into bands like rage against the machine but i don't think i fully understood its politics at the time um and i also was playing at a bunch of sort of punk uh, punk band called dystopia that was quite angsty and angry um so that was kind of like my early teenage sort of you know years um but When it came to actually developing a more intellectual sort of academic sense of the political world, I can say that it was my university experience that was formative. So um, I moved away, I went to the University of Guelph's English and Theater Studies School. Um, I was into acting, I was acting in a lot of plays. Um, I was also in English, reading a lot of literary theory, a lot of cultural theory, uh, a lot of post-colonial literary studies. Marx really wasn't in vogue at the time. You know, it's so interesting to reflect back upon that moment, even in academia, because I don't recall reading anything by Marx until the very last semester of my four-year, four-year undergraduate experience. I mean, it was a really significant low point for democratic socialism, right? Um, it was like a dirty word. I mean, people just wouldn't even say I'm a socialist or I'm interested in socialist politics at the time. I, was that similar for you uh, growing up at the time or, or going to school at the time? Or um,
0: to, to be honest, yes, in, in many ways. I think that certainly it wasn't until my third year yeah, in studying. And the, granted, I, I was studying kind of uh, politics, philosophy and economics. So I had a little bit more exposure. But certainly, I mean, the difference between the late 90s and now is – A difference of kind as opposed to degree. I mean, if anything, Marx was often seen as quite outdated and, you know, not, you know, something you had to read as kind of a historical relic as opposed to a contemporary way more
1: more more on like a bit of like the post-marxist deconstructionist mode where you kind of read Marx to sort of highlight all of the vulgar assumptions being made about economy and the working class and sort of how societies change and there's always a bit of a knee-jerk this is sort of like economically reductionist and we need to talk more about superstructure and culture and often i found that people would engage in marx only to sort of you know deconstruct and then dismiss it and then move on to some some new sort of formation and 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 i mean well, I mean, I think one of the first books that was assigned in my fourth year was like, you know, Derrida's *Specters of Marx*, right? Where you're sort of saying there's <laughs> something here, but you know, it was such a different time. So I didn't really, uh, I wasn't really introduced to Marx again until my, my fourth year of university, um, and and I don't remember really sort of, you know, being t- I mean, I was reading some Jean Baudrillard and Guy Spivak. and I remember reading *Can the Subaltern Speak*, which was was an incredible essay. Um, but not a lot was really connecting with me on a deeply personal level or as related, I think, to my own class experience. Um, but it mm-hmm. was really reading Marx and I think the manifesto for the first time that that sort of theory started to click with my own experience and the political world beyond myself. And I started making those connections. Um, and perhaps it takes something like the manifesto to do that. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so I, you know, I think I was one of those students as well. Um, I was probably one of those students that was like tormenting professors with questions like, "Like, what is the point of this theory? Like, what does this theory have to do with the real world? <laughs> <laughs> and i almost getting irritated. I, remember, yeah.
0: I mean, just, just on that, like, it's funny because, you know, so much of our uh, trajectory, I mean, I think has a parallel. Mine was, I read uh, Althusser right after I read Derrida. Um, and I must have read four marks for about three straight yep. months. Wow. And then six months because I just was so blown away by it. Yes. Um, and it felt like, you know, especially on my own, I mean, I was just gaining the theoretical resources to understand something like this, but it also, you know, touched on my own class experience. And then I went back and I really revisited everything with marks just because of that. So, yeah, I mean, what you're saying, I mean, makes a lot of sense. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's it's so interesting how these, I mean, it's it's interesting to try to historicize our own development, I guess, is sort of, you know, um, we're I guess we're on the bridge between like Gen Xers and millennials in terms of like the mm. whole sort of, history of of socialist sort of formation and, and sort of mm. how sort of developments, you know, worked over time. And, and even the intellectual currents within higher education that were both limiting and enabling that horizon of renewed socialist thinking and practice. But, you know, it's mm. funny, wasn't even I don't you know what so it wasn't reading Marx that 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 did it for me that really did actually it, that was sort of that was crystallizing some of the things that I was thinking and feeling um, about the world but it was actually now that I remember it was a third year um, theatrical production course um, taught by a Canadian historian of radical political theater named Alan Fowlwad and it was a 1999 and we staged the Um, we staged the agitprop play Waiting for Lefty, which is a riveting 1935 agitprop play by Clifford Odette. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with the play, but it centers on the lives of um, cab drivers in the lead up to a strike against the owners of a fleet of cabs. And it was inspired by um, uh, the New York taxi riots of 1934. So it sort of like identifies transportation system as a site of class struggle, which was kind of interesting because at the time I was still sort of thinking like, class struggle is related to factory or manufacturing, um, not different services such as as transport. But um, the play spoke to me and, and, you know, it's like about a widening divide between the sort of has and have nots, the sort of ruling class and the working class. And there's a lot of sort of very, um, you know, riveting sort of uh, political monologues. Um, And I played the role of Sid, uh, a young cabbie who loves Florence and Basically, it's like, you know, it's both these two young and poor people that are in love that, you know, simply cannot make their way in the world um, because of the, the harsh material conditions um, that they're experiencing. And they, they want to sort of do something very typical, I guess what we would now call like middle class, you know, move out of their parents' house, save up enough money, get their own house, start a family, settle down and, and have a happy ever after sort of life. But that's sort of dream simply not possible. They simply cannot make ends meet. So they're kind of like trapped. And then until the end of the play, they unite with other working people to strike against the the, the cab owners. Um, and the final scene of the play is a socialist, I think, named uh, Agate, who's saying, like, don't wait around for lefty. Like, be the left. Be the change. Um, make mm-hmm. a new world, And then the lights go out. And then everyone chants, strike, strike, strike. And so that's... <laughs> So I kind of like came, I was like whoa. So I, it was through this acting experience, right, where I'm sort of um, really making these connections as well. And and then after that, we 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 also um, collaboratively produced and performed uh, something called the Agit Prop Project. And this was like a series of vignettes inspired by uh, the Days of Action. And in the context of Ontario, the Days of Action was like a massive uh, coordinated uh, campaign of intersecting social movements and protests against. Um, the conservative government of the time um, that was led by uh, Mike Harris that was imposing all of these austerity measures and cuts to social services and healthcare and education and welfare. And and this was sort of this long sort of, you know, three year sort of set of campaigns between 95 and 98. And so in addition to doing Clifford Odette's Waiting for Lefty play, this, this, this theatrical production class was basically a workshop that allowed us to create um, agitprop theater that spoke to the sort of experience of the previous three years in the province politically, and I was remember I was I was playing in one scene. I played the uh, Alfred Hayes song uh, Joe Hill about the Wobblies, um, and that was fun. So, so it was sort of like I guess through culture that I became more class conscious, and 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 linking in mm-hmm. class consciousness to actual existing politics of the left, um, and that was also i think as you'll recall where we we had sort of the the anti-globalization movement of movements so the battle of seattle in 99 and and the disruption of the imf and world bank meetings in washington of 2000 and mm-hmm. and then also uh i was reading nomi klein i remember do you remember no logo
0: yeah, absolutely
1: no, yeah and that was like kind of like uh that was a really incredible book. I mean, I remember just being like, whoa, and you're sort of, you know, global capitalism and transnational commodity chains are being sort of identified. And you've got this renewed critique of commodity fetishism. And, you know, the idea is that the Nike swoosh kind of, you know, um, you know, distorts or conceals the sort of horrific conditions of labor that are required sort of to produce the shoes on which the swoosh is stitched. And that was kind of an interesting time, too. And so that that was kind of formative. And but I mean, in terms I of the. Sorry, go ahead.
0: No, I was just saying, I mean, uh, I, I I never do this, but I, it's such an interesting thing. I mean, because I, I was uh, part of the anti globalization protest in Washington, D.C., and I remember reading No Logo. And I, and I think it's hard sometimes to put ourselves back there because I think the Iraq war and then the financial crisis um, and then things that have happened recently feel like such a break. But I mean, It was such an interesting time because, you know, you were being told every day that how wonderful the economy was. And then you look around and so many of the same issues that you see now were there. And it was this kind of crystallization, as you said, of a really, really interesting, I would say, not internationalist movement, but an internationalist class consciousness that you hadn't seen for, what, 30, 40, 50 years?
1: You're, absolutely, and I mean, remember the slogan "Another world is possible." Um, yes, and it was such a sort of moment. And I think you're right. So much of that was 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 you know uh, neutralized or contained or displaced um, following the terrorist attacks of 9/11 and the global war on terror. And then, of course, the appropriate response to that was a, a global, you know, transnational peace movement, an anti-war movement. But at the same time, I think so many people on the left sort of put their energies primarily into stopping that war, protesting the war. And many of the other issues that were brought up in the late 90s kind of were, were, were put aside only up until sort of the, the financial crisis with, with Occupy when when these sort of renewed class issues were put back on the agenda. But it was also, you know, that the weeks after um, the terrorist attacks of 9/11, that 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 was probably the first time I really started thinking seriously about U.S. foreign policy and, and questions of of empire. Mm-hmm. I I had moved to Toronto, um, Toronto, Canada, to start my Ph.D. in the joint program in communication and culture at uh, York and Ryerson University, mm-hmm. and again, I was I was less interested in doctoral research at the time, uh, more interested in plugging into um, Your know, Toronto's left uh, peace activist scene, and so I mean, I, I was yeah, like like I'm um, like you, and I'm sure many others um, protesting the the U.S.'s dubious pretext for the invasion and occupation of Iraq with the Toronto coalition to stop the war. And oh man, what this was such a formative moment, but also a disappointing one. I mean, I really did believe. Perhaps I was just like liberal or naive, or or so. I'm not even sure, but. I really believe that like if millions of people all over the planet united behind peace activists, you know, the war could be stopped. Like I really mm-hmm. imagine that in this new global media age with people connecting across borders through the internet, with these protests being covered on television, that, you know, the empire might bend to the so-called multitudes will. Um, but, you know, we were we were wrong. I mean, this this was a historic, you know, anti-war transnationally coordinated, you know, set of demonstrations there was nothing like it historically if you think about even the the peace movement around vietnam it took many many years before the peace movement even started gathering momentum and steam this was like a preemptive you know uh, war peace demonstration but
0: i mean absolutely i i was at china for it i when, when much of this was happening because i was teaching economics over there wow and it was such a, and then it was such an interesting vantage point because i think you're right that I think the movement from hegemony to imperialism is one in which traditional forms of cultural democratic protest become easily marginalized and subsumed to, you know, empire, if you want to use it. Yeah. And I, and I think this was it, like, I mean, it was very clear even in China that, it, you know, that it wasn't going to matter because the U.S. had made a decision that this was going to happen. That- and yeah. And, and then when I, I will say when I, I was after that in the direct aftermath of that, I was um, a lobbyist as well as a waiter. So, so I don't want a lobbyist to Lobbyist, it was up too much. A lobbyist for what? Uh, no. So, okay. So I mean, this is a, a, a very tangential thing. At, at one point I was working for an anti-nuclear weapon campaign. Wow. Um, yes. So then um, from that, I, you know, I could see in many ways. I mean, just within both the Democrats and Republicans. I mean, I don't think people always realize. um, And this is why I think the media imperialism stuff is so fantastic. The amount of money that the international weapons, you know, industry has. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, this, this, this is not, I think, a lot of peace activists and things that they think this is an ethical moral issue and it, it certainly is in a particular way, but it's also a power issue. I mean, you know, people like Biden and Clinton, for instance, or whether Cheney or Bush, I mean, these are people who are massively supported by what, you know, many in the right conspiratorially called the deep state, but it, you know, as, as horrible as it is in terms of their articulation of it, it's not it's not an incorrect critique, like it's and. I wouldn't even say it's a deep state. I'd say if if you're there, it's very much out of the open.
1: Yeah. I mean, think of, I mean, but, but I mean, it's interesting. We don't need to sort of, you know, imply some sort of conspiracy when we're trying to understand or or disentangle the various forces that constitute, you know, what the old Republican Dwight Eisenhower called the military industrial complex and the the influence it has, right? On everyday life, on economics and on politics too. Uh, it's, but, but I hear you for sure. And, and, and I think in many ways that, that critique is being revivified too. So, so, I mean, yeah, back to the sort of, again, the whole, my formation, I think, intellectually politically, it was really during that moment, as you mentioned, it seemed like the Iraq war was going to happen with or without the people. It was like the people were almost irrelevant. The war planners had made a decision. The destruction of Iraq seemed imminent. It happened. It proceeded. And that th- sort of did make me question my assumptions about street protests, you know, as a viable means of social change. And I think it was probably after that disappointing experience that I wanted to plug into something more structured or more organizational, or something that could s- sort of withstand or sustain itself over the ups and downs of the many sort of street protests that that we've experienced. And and um, but anyway, I, I guess, like, so I, I, I was a bit lost in my PhD program after that. And then fortunately, I was found by a, a wonderful mentor, um, Colin Moores, who was one of the very few socialist and Marxist profs uh, doing kind of communication and cultural studies at the time um, in my program. And so we, we, we basically um, he supervised two special historical materialism courses in which we read all of, like, the great... Marxist cultural and communication sort of works, um, you know, starting with like, you know, Marxist German ideologies, like fragments from Gramsci's prison notebooks, like aesthetics and politics stuff by Walter Benjamin and Theodore Adorno and Max Horkheimer, And, and then the Birmingham Center for Cultural Studies tradition works by like Raymond Williams and Stuart Hall and, and, you know, Paul Willis, and Angela McRobbie, and, you know, it, stuff on ideology by Terry Eagleton. like it was like, awesome. It was one of like, my most my happiest, most utopic experiences, having one full year, you know, with without, you know, freed from this realm of necessity to just sort of like read deeply and broadly on the history of, sort mm-hmm. of this cultural theory. Um, and I was able to sort of also meet some really, really thoughtful and brilliant people um, during my years in the PhD program. I met Ellen Wood and David McNally and Leo Panich and um, ended up writing my, my my dissertation, *The State of Cultural Imperialism*, which returned to the political economy of communications work by, by the U.S. scholar Herbert Schiller. And I was trying to sort of revise and renew this theory of cultural and media imperialism for the 21st century. Um, and that's been sort of part of my my I guess research trajectory since then. But so that's I guess like that's sort of like a broad overview of like I guess the personal to the political to the academic back to the political. Um, Some of like, I think the key moments in my life that shaped, um, you know, how I sort of came to start thinking about these issues and and trying to do something about them concretely. Um,
0: Mm. No, I mean, I I think it's fascinating. And I also think it it shows the ways in which, you know you can bring activism together with scholarship. And I think in many ways that's easy to be lost, but you know, the trajectory you've had I think it's similar to a lot of people um, and it's very inspiring and, and it shows that, you know, you can bring really high and deep and rigorous, like you said, study with really on the ground and important kind of, you know, political work and that they're not actually separate, so.
1: Yeah, I, and I mean, I, think, I also think that, that we're in some way, you know, if we are in a sort of principled way, committed to the ideas that we, we use in our research, in our publishing, in our teaching, I think that we are obligated to also you know, do our best to sort of plug into those movements that in some way that we're speaking about or, or interested in supporting and, and also building or contributing in a meaningful way to building them. Um, you know, not as people that have all the answers or, or know the one best way to change the world, but as people that can be there as sort of as, as supporters, as allies, as contributors, and as also people that can be changed profoundly by their political experiences within these movements and organizations. I mean, I, I sometimes feel like the best political education um, that I've had is largely due to participating in movements and, and also participating in the socialist project. Um, it's mm. just you really do get a concrete sense of just how challenging, you know, emancipatory politics are in the 21st century when, when you're doing, theorizing or writing about, right?
0: Mm. And, and, and I think it becomes, in many ways, when you're theorizing learning, it, it. there's a certain ways in which our work as scholars um, becomes one of sometimes making things as eloquent as possible or as clear as possible. And the political work allows us to remember that, you know, this is a journey. It's a process and it's collective. So I think I'm very interested, though, uh, before getting into your, your you know, really incredible scholarship, your work with the Socialist Project. So, just for our listeners, I mean, it's in Toronto, but what is the Socialist Project, and what kind of work is it doing? Sure.
1: No, thank you. That's 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 a great question. Um, and so, you know, when I was giving the the sort of narrative historical overview of my own intellectual and political formation, I, I kind of stopped at, you know, I, I sort of participated in in the anti-war and the peace movements, and then sort of became kind of disappointed by. Um, you know, street street protests, I guess. Um, and at the very same time that that those um, demonstrations were happening, um, a group of, I guess, independent leftists in Canada um, that were from Toronto um, established the Socialist Project as a new organization. And some of the key sort of founders of the organization were. Um, Leo Panitch and Greg Alpo, who are currently the co-editors of the Socialist Register. Um, mm-hmm. And there were uh, you know, Sam Gindin, uh, a number of other independent sort of leftists that had come out of the, 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 the new left and the new new left of the 90s. <laughs> and people were searching for a new type of democratic socialist organization. Uh, I think like a new kind of collective project that was something in between um, a, a movement and a party it was like an intermediary space of sorts between those two polls, where it was either you're going to you know, throw yourself into party politics and parliamentary politics, or you're going to sort of stick to sort of often single issue campaign-based social movement um, you know, activism. And I think it was intended as, as a bridge or between those two sort of polls um, uh, or an intermediary space of sorts where we could build our collective capacities and resources um, over the longer term. So that, that was established in, in 2003. Um, I participated initially when I was doing my Ph.D. and after sort of my Ph.D. experience between 2003 and 2009. Uh, I took a step back between 2009 and 2016. And then I sort of been active since 2016 again. So the Socialist Project's gone through about three or four different iterations or phases. Um, often constituted by by long members that have been part of it since two thousand and three, um, but more more and more um, new members that that were not a part of the first and second iterations of the project. But I guess, like I, in terms of what it is, um, I, I, I see it as a non sectarian organization that's open to socialists from a wide variety of historical tendencies and traditions, and so it wouldn't identify uh, explicitly with sort of the 20th century's various tendencies, Um, you know, whether they be social democratic, Leninist, or Trotskyist. It's, would say like, these are salient and significant contributions to the history of of the left, Um, but we want to try to forge something new and different that is in tune with our times without, of course, dismissing or relegating those contributions. I think the sort of attitude was that we need to sort of think, you know, locally about what's going on in Toronto, the specificities of of the Canadian scene, then also link sort of to international and transnational struggles at the same time, um, but without sort of the, maybe the confidence of the you know 20th century tendencies that kind of seem to sometimes have answers uh, to a lot of questions. Um, some, some of the I mean again, some of the, the members would strongly identify and say, "Oh yeah, I mean, I had participated in social democratic politics for 30 years, and I became disillusioned with that, or I was part of a Maoist group at one point, or I was part of a Trotskyist organization, or Lenin still does have a lot of really valuable and useful things to say. Some might identify as like eurocommunist. you know a lot of people read Nico Pollans and say, like Polansis is where mm-hmm. it's at. You see the United States and the DSA. Colansis being, I think, a significant theorist as well. Mm. So, you know, it's an intergenerational organization. I think you've got people from the the new left, um, the sort of 90s, um, you know, anti and alternative globalization movements. And then most of the people that I've met over the past few years are are literally just coming of age um, right now as socialists. So it's really, really exciting to have this intergenerational mix. And it can you know, work sort of to create a real dynamism, um, just to sort of mm-hmm. see this sort of passing on and down and sort of, of of tradition. We're we're also sort of the the new members that are coming of age as socialists. As in these times, are also teaching. You know, the so-called teachers, which is exciting. Mm. Um, I think
0: I think it's it's an interesting point about, um, and, and this shades into the next uh, kind of area we're going to look at, though. I want to talk a little bit more about some of the socialist uh, projects work, but sure. I find it really interesting how I think for a lot of people and, and like myself even who are still in that kind of 20th century Marxist socialist tradition, that so much of it was linked to this kind of enlightenment model of which truth is right. So it was a search for truth. Whereas I, I don't know what your experience with this, but I find a lot of the excitement about, Socialism today is about these. And it's a very kind of social media age where these are all just kind of different perspectives and resources that we can creatively apply. Right. Mm. Um, and I, I think that's really exciting that it's not even like a nose situation of like, oh, we can have Trotskyist and Leninist and no, but more of, well, you know, uh, I don't think a, let's just fuck around and find out kind of situation, you know? <laughs> yeah,
1: I mean, I, I think it's through you know a, a structure that sort of empowers you know new socialist practices. You know, and one of those practices mm-hmm. being you know rigorous debates and discussions about what's going on and 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 how the world is changing and why it's not changing the way that we might imagine or want it to, and what at a level of strategy or tactics, you know, can we do? in practice to try to move forward and so having those spaces you know with without clear-cut guarantees of 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 exactly where we're going or what the future is I think does allow for that sort of that that dynamism and that creativity Um, but that's not to say that we don't you know think through you know serious policy issues because Mm -hmm. that's that's important as well Um, and I mean one of one of the key members of the socialist project um Sam Gindon um, wrote uh, a really excellent article for uh, The Catalyst uh, a few years ago called Socialism for, for Realists, when he's basically saying, OK, here is something akin <laughs> to, to a blueprint. Now, now, that article itself is discussed and debated within the Socialist Project. So, mm-hmm. so again, it's, it's, it's having these kind of open spaces for dialogue and debate, um, and sort of a collective practice that allows us to find ourselves as socialists and articulate kind of a socialist politic, um, you know, for, for the times that I think is a major draw for people. Um, as opposed to sometimes, you know, entering an organization saying, here's here's the line, here's sort of the great texts that you must read, here, and then here's what we're going to do. It's, you know, it's a little more, much more fluid than that, I think.
0: Mm. One of the aspects that has interested me about the Socialist Project, and I think this touches on other things that are happening around the world, is the fact that it's, as you said, it's kind of a, uh, a something between a movement and a party. And that has resulted in, you know, not just being a campaign organization or a discussion organization, but actually thinking about, as you mentioned, you know, concrete policies, but also concrete spaces for experimenting with socialism. So. Yeah. I think you've seen this in the abolitionist movement, for instance, recently with the autonomous zones. Um, And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, because I find that very exciting and, and quite necessary as a 21st century kind of socialist praxis of, you know, let's actually try out socialist principles for, you know, redefining our social existence today.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that's that's the thing, you're right, between between sort of a movement and a party. The socialist project is made up of um, like semi-autonomous committees, uh, each of which is responsible for a certain area of practice or or political work. Um, And so each of these committees sort of meets on its own with its own specific members. But then the group or the organization as a whole meets on a monthly basis um, to then sort of report back upon the committee's activities and then also to sort of engage in discussion and debate which is, is also done in a, in, a, in a deeply democratic fashion to the extent that we, we vote on, on everything, right? <laughs> um, so the Cultural Committee, for example, builds spaces for the production and exhibition of socialist cultural expressions. Um, uh, the Education Committee organizes, publicizes, and facilitates socialist workshops and talks, such as the Capitalism Workshop and, and Red Talks. Um, yeah. uh, it also sponsors book launches and public lectures by socialist thinkers. Um, And the media committee produces multi-platform socialist media, such as the Bullet Online Magazine, the Left Stream Video Archive, and a few new members that just joined last month started an Instagram page and are also going to maybe get on TikTok as as well. (laughs) Um, The Labor Committee was working to revive, uh, you know, a militant labor movement, kind of um, working with trade union activists um, in in education, um, in um, auto manufacturing, and in public transit and so so you know so each of these committees meets separately um, and, and sort of engages in, in various forms of, of of socialist practice. but then the these committees come together on a monthly or bimonthly basis to to report back about those activities, and then also to sort of debate, discuss, and vote on what the next priorities are. Um, what, one of the, the the I think most interesting examples of the socialist Project's work over the past few years was the Green Jobs Oshawa campaign. Um, And so basically like in 2018, General Motors, the big sort of auto manufacturing company announced a number of closures across North America. And the largest closure was of the plant in Oshawa, Ontario which is also where um, my university is uh, and where I, I, I went to work before the COVID-19 pandemic happened. Everything's gone online. So, so basically the Oshawa facility was like one of the largest um, auto-producing complexes on the continent, but GM basically shut it down. And In response to this announcement, um, the Socialist Projects members joined a small group of rank and file Oshawa workers and also community allies from Labor Council, from sort of eco-socialists to just community members in general to establish Green Jobs Oshawa. And the, the goal was basically to to say, like, okay. This plant is is being closed down by GM. This is just squandered economic sort of capacity. We can do other things. we can imagine other ways of reconfiguring this capacity uh, for the social good. We could call for democratic economic planning, um, labor and environmental movement convergence you know converting the factory for the public good and sustainability so this was sort of like a very, very significant campaign that brought together the Socialist Project and a number of different, you know, groups and movements in and around Oshawa and the Greater Toronto Area. And in the spirit of the Green New Deal, we're saying that the the plant should be publicly owned and retooled to produce environmentally sustainable products, including electric vehicles. Um, I mean, it was unfortunate the campaign didn't win, um, GM, you know, went ahead, closed down the plant. I mean, it's just as atrocious because GM had received just millions and millions in, in public subsidies uh, over the past mm. decades. And it was just such a waste. But it did. You know, the campaign didn't win, but but it did allow people to create new connections and, 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 and forms of solidarity. Um, it raised people's expectations. You know, it was kind of like, like you know, it's just like, oh, we can do something different here. This plant does not need to be closed. Um, We can actually imagine what this plant could be um, with regard to, you know, 21st century eco-socialist politic. Um, You know, it was covered, you know, the media gave it some positive coverage, like Naomi Klein, you know, and other prominent voices in the global movement sort of, you know, endorsed it. Um, I mean, my work was minimal for this campaign. It was more of sort of media work. So, I made like an infographic. I made a short video. I made some posters. You know that was really my mm-hmm. my contribution. Um, whereas many others were were sort of organizing at a grassroots level with 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 workers in the community. I was sort of doing some media support for that one. Um, mm-hmm. So I mean that's that's I guess a concrete example of one of the political practices the Socialist Project has engaged in. Mm-hmm. But my I think that you know. I think, aside from its organizing work, I think the greatest strength of the group has really just been in the area of, of of education, and and of sort of creating these spaces for for socialism to flourish, for a socialist politic and practice to be reimagined, and for people to gain confidence and, um, you know, an ability to sort of you know view the world as socialist and then then sort of think through ways of acting at the same time. Um, so I mean, I mean for, for about four years before the COVID-19 physical distancing regime sort of came into effect, I mean, we were organizing on average 20 public events every year, you know, from like public mm. lectures, to book launches, to talks, to cultural, you know, um, events, to film, film nights, you know, it, it was, it was, it was really good. I mean, it's, it's been a bit of a challenge with, with, with everything sort of being online right now. It just doesn't feel the same, but we're, we're, mm-hmm. we're trying to sort of rebuild our capacity in that environment too. Um.
0: Mm. Well, one of the, the aspects that uh, is fascinating to have you here, and, and that's a good kind of segue into it, is what is the kind of role of social media and digital technology for radical struggles? And I think one of the points that I I found interesting and and I'm I'm so glad that you're able to join the show on this because you can give a a bit of a deeper answer to this if you're willing is I think that there's so much misunderstanding about how social media is just maybe a tool or you know it's just a perpetuator of fake news or it's the kind of panacea for everything that has gone before Um, (laughs) and I I think (laughs) I think would be interesting to explore in terms of you know beyond the surface of on the one hand, as someone you know who has this background and, and you know such a thoughtful uh, scholar in this respect, like how is it you know changing, if you will, if you want to use these esoteric terms, you know the epistemology of politics, meaning, you know how is this actually changing the ways in which we know what we know and make sense of the world and therefore seek to act to change the world. I mean, one aspect of this I think we could talk about is we are in a much more networked society and we think more in terms of networks, for instance, than in traditional 20th century community ways. Um, And also though, how much of this is, you know, merely an updating of a lot of things that were already there. So, I mean, how much of this is, you know, like I said, something that is really transformative um, in a positive and negative sense potentially. And how much of this is merely innovative, you know, something that is just, you know, rebooting already foundational ideas that we have and practices that we have.
1: Yeah, that's a really thoughtful question, Peter. Thank you. I mean, with regard to the the epistemology of socialist politics as related to developments in media and um, communication technologies, I think it would be really, really useful to try to historicize, um, it, you know, to answer that question. I mean, we could go back to sort of like Marx's time, right, and say, okay, so what means of communication were available to Karl Marx when, you know, with, you know, dip ink pen in hand writing the manifesto over a few <laughs> weeks, right? So you, okay, so you had sort of the the ink pen, you had paper, you had a printing press, um, and then you had very, very, you know, slow moving means of distribution, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, Marx would, you know, pen the manifesto, The manifesto was then physically or mechanically reproduced by the uh, printing press that was owned by uh, the Workingmen's Association. And then you have a whole bunch of copies of the manifesto. And then you have the challenge of distributing or circulating that manifesto. Right. So so then it's okay. We can sort of, you know, walk around town and like drop manifestos, you know, Why we can try to use the postal system, okay? It's snail mail as we call it these days. Mm-hmm. Then you also have the challenge of like, you know, globalizing or internationalizing that socialist content. And that means that you need to sort of, you know, ship them, you know, across oceans such as boats. Um, you know, or find some way of maybe using um, you know, horseback postal services to get them to another part of the 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 country. But so you know it was it was a slow-moving circulation and distribution process. Um whereas again, I think today's media is very, very fast and instantaneous, uh, mm-hmm. which, which is I think a benefit. But but I mean I think the point is is that you know going back to Marx's time. You know socialist parties organizations activists you know we've always been engaging in multimedia communications but but what we learned i think starting from maybe around the late 30s forward or maybe even earlier than that during the first red scare um was was that you know the mainstream media you know owned and controlled by capitalists sort of you know funded largely by ad revenue was not very hospitable to the free flow of socialist ideas Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and so we always we always have struggled with the circulation and distribution problem. It, it wasn't that we weren't producing like high quality socialist magazines or newspapers or pamphlets or posters. It's just that finding a mass audience for that, especially as the, the sort of electronic and mass media industries developed was was always a great challenge. Um, so so I mean if you look again at, at at socialist media in the United States at least from from you know the early twentieth century forward, socialist media was largely marginalized. It was always sort of, you know, relegated to the margins. It did not sort of, you know, get a mainstream mass audience. It could never, you know, capture an audience on the scale of say like you know, time magazine so like even in the 1980s like um you know radical america one of the sort of great new left sort of socialist magazines had a readership of about like four or five thousand whereas like time magazine had four million subscribers you know and, and there mm. were like alternative tv and community you know tv um you know initiatives that were, were were taking place in the late 70s and 80s as well but i mean an episode of like dallas on cbs would get like 90 million people watching simultaneously in in one evening, you know, we we just Mm. so I I think, again, to bring it back to to the social media platforms and the new digital media technologies. um, We are learning how to use the Internet, uh, digital technologies and social media, not only to produce socialist media, but to instantaneously distribute and circulate it on a scale um, that is unprecedented as compared to the previous hundred years or so. Um, mm-hmm. I mean I when I go on YouTube and even watch all of these bread tubers or left tubers, I mean some of these significant sort of socialist youtubers have audiences of now like four hundred thousand people. Um, mm. This was simply not possible for you know it just it wasn't happening, so I think that's kind of an exciting um development um, I think
0: one thing that I would be interested in your view is is also about ways in which we can repurpose. Uh, not just the multimedia aspect, but the kind of liberal cultures of media that arise from it for more radical kind of ends. I mean, two examples I've seen about this that i, I found very fascinating is, on the one hand, the ways in which you know liberal media really revolves around even when it's quote unquote serious journalism, and I often put that in quotes. Um, this kind of very personalized liberal drama, right? Who's going to win the election? What's Mm. someone's campaign number? Is this person going to quit? And, and, you know, as someone who's worked on socialist things, I mean, it was always very difficult because, you know, it's very hard then to break through that kind of liberal dramatic epistemology that has, you know, strong roots for 150 years, right? And literary theory is very good at helping us see this, with you know, structural critiques of capitalism (laughs) every week. Um, And what I've seen now is that there's a really interesting ways in which they been able to use it so i was very interested in the harper controversy for people to know that the letter that was right. written by and this was just a classic example of for me this ways in which you had this letter that was uh about you know against cancel culture and it, it was you know both the content in many ways but certainly the the people who signed it were, it was completely reactionary in many in in very strong ways and this could have become just let's, you know, engage in, in, in a type of like drama about it or get lost. In it. But it actually became really interesting to watch how a lot of left wing groups used to critique of it to actually ask serious questions of who is being canceled, actually, who is being allowed to speak? Yeah. Et cetera.
1: I, I know. Um, I mean, I mean, might, might we sort of, you know, consider the, the 20th century development of the commercially oriented mass media industries as the United States as um, a, a perfect expression of, of you know, cancel culture at large. <laughs> you know, like, yes. can't, <laughs> the left. I mean, the, the mainstream corporate media for for basically 100 years or more canceled the socialist left. And it was only over the past 10, 15 years or so that we've been able to sort of, you know, rebuild our media and sort of break into um, the mainstream media environment, largely because I think of the role that the internet and social media platforms are playing in our politics. But... But I mean yeah, absolutely you're absolutely right I mean it's sort of these, these terms like cancel culture get sort of presented by liberals and then we are then then you see sort of other people on the socialist left or elsewhere um, sort of appropriating uh, that discourse and then articulating it to to some sort of uh, problem that they're identifying with the system as a whole or, or even the structure mm-hmm. of the mass media or the voices that the mass media is privileging for for speech about these matters um, mm-hmm. I mean mm-hmm. this a so- little isn't it? Like this is an old like conservative melodrama like you know fears about you know <laughs> yes. i mean this goes back to like the 70s and the rise of the new the new right um where mm-hmm. it's all this mm-hmm. idea that that there's like the big government the big media the big educational institutions they're basically just brimming and stocked with a whole bunch of radical marxists socialists intolerant liberals and you know we're, we're sort of like repressing or ostracizing i guess the little conservative white cisgender male's voice this is like a it's like a 50-year kind of like pr line for the right isn't it
0: I, I i think so i mean i think and it's also it's very very fascinating to watch the ways in which also you know people who traditionally wouldn't have to justify themselves suddenly do so i mean i was interested in this letter right that someone like stephen pinker was like signing it and was like very upset by it and it's like See, you're not being canceled, quote unquote. I mean, he's certainly not being canceled because he's, you know, you're not being canceled because like, oh, you're being prosecuted. It's because you're a bad scholar. Right. Like it's called peer review. Like exactly. you wrote several books and none of them were evidence-based and other scholars, like, you know, if, if, you know, as we say in our thing, uh, and I've made the trip before, but so it's a little, bit. but if reviewer number two doesn't like your paper, they're not canceling you. <laughs> Right, precisely.
1: Right. I mean, can't we just think we could even just be be liberals about this and say, yeah, for, you know, freedom of speech and expression is great, but it always there's consequences. If, you know, just yes. because you speak your mind doesn't mean someone can't speak theirs in response. And they might not like what you have to say, and they might sort of call for sort of your ideas to be dismissed or not platformed, you know, or ridiculed by large numbers of people. But that's kind of like a peer review process or on mass, right?
0: And, and, and I, I think. But I also think that it's, it's interesting with the with the social media part and, and was that I've noticed this um, recently that I find so interesting. And I think it's a little bit one of the benefits of how there was this, you know, really fallow period for much of the left, particularly in the U.S., right, where so many things that previously would have been like, what are you doing, just as allowable. And I think social media has allowed it, which is this kind of do-it-yourself hacker culture around radicalism. Like now you can go on YouTube and you can, you know, if I want to know how to drill something or to, you know, I think I'm all right at handiwork because I've just learned it on YouTube. Yeah, it's, I think a lot of people are doing that with now politics and socialism where it's like, I don't need to spend, I mean, you should spend quite a bit of time, you know, really understanding the history and the theories, but it's this kind of D di- it's like DIY socialism. Like if I want to know how to start a commons, I'll just look it up on YouTube well, exactly. I'll comment it.
1: I mean, I mean, again, that's a really it's, it's such a that's it's, it's such a novel observation. I think it's spot on because, you know, if you think about, again, the history of the socialist left has involved movements and organizations. And those often were the spaces where people learn to become socialists and, and learn to sort of, you know, um, you know, do activism. But, but the internet and social media platforms are sort of like, yeah, a DIY form of socialist self-education. So there's really interesting work to be done just a socialist digital literacy. Like on YouTube, a learner can subscribe to free courses like Reading Marx's Capital with David Harvey. I mean, it, previously, mm-hmm. you need to either find someone to recommend a book by Harvey or go to university or college and be instructed by Harvey or go to a public lecture in which Harvey was giving a, a talk on Capital But but now it's like sort of people all over sort of the world, so long as they have an Internet connection, some rudimentary digital literacy skills, a computer um, can sort of, you know, have almost like immediate access to and content uh, or access to content by sort of these 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 massively significant left Marxist and socialist thinkers. So, I mean, that's 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 different. I mean, even during sort of, um, you know, COVID-19. the uh, you know Jacobin supported the COVID nineteen stay at home live stream videos on YouTube with you know basically mm-hmm. their 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 pamphlets by Vivek Chibber you know Chibber is giving lectures about the pamphlets kind of like socialism one hundred one um, and mm-hmm. and being sort of you know tuned into by 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 hundreds of thousands of people so I mean like I think that flesh and blood educators like still matter um, yes. But, but for you know, but just think about that. Where are so many of the the organizers and the educators, often in sort of you know, dense urban metropolitan centers? And the fact is is that a lot of people simply don't have access to those face-to-face or physically proximate meetings. Of course, there's lots of grassroots organizing happening um, you know across the US and Canada and in smaller communities. But I mean, I think historically, so much of the organizing and educational left has happened within these metropolitan centers. And so in a way, people on the peripheries of these centers can, can plug into these, 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 these actions, at least at the level of, 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 ed, of self-education, right?
0: I think, I think as well, one of the interesting points is how, and this is going to get a, a bit out there potentially, but it's the transhuman aspect to it because traditionally, and we've, we've all gone through this as organizers. I mean, so much of your job as an organizer is just to bring people in the space together so they can talk, and they can collaborate and then, you know, campaign or find solidarity or mutual aid, et cetera, right? And now you have things like in the red state revolt where you didn't necessarily need, you know, at first these kind of professional or these experienced organizers to do because you had social media platforms, very capitalist ones, and insidious ones like Facebook that nevertheless fulfilled a lot of that role of being a platform that people could meet each other on talk about and plan actions with. Right. And so I think that's also quite different that, you know, if you look at the ways in which now, like, you know, like I said, the teachers movement that was happening, you know, it was, you know, someone posting a Facebook post and saying, can you guys believe this? This is horrible. And then someone else saying, I can't believe this either. And then that Facebook page becoming itself an organizing tool.
1: That's right. I mean, I, I remember, I, you know, speaking of the Red State Revolt, I remember, I'm, I'm reminded of um, Eric Blanc's book by that, that title, right? And, and I think that, that, that Blanc, yes, yeah, is like Facebook is really significant to worker self-organizing. I think actually, I actually have a quote here. I, I just remember um, I was reading this recently. You know, Blanc writes, quote, without social media, there's no chance that the Red State Revolt would have developed as it did. Facebook made it possible to communicate easily with large groups of people and to widely disseminate calls to action, without as in the past having to undertake the arduous work of building up a well-resourced formal organizational infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that that that's that's very very interesting. But at the same time, I think mm-hmm. we also need to remember that 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 that, that you know the GAFAM, <laughs> you know, Facebook included. I don't think these companies are great friends to the working class. They may be used. No, by- no. but their actual labor practices are quite, quite atrocious.
0: Absolutely. And and I think, you know, that that's a really nice uh, way to think about, because I think that they can be very good for campaigning, but actually creating kind of socialist platforms, you know, of living a increasingly, you know, physical and virtual, you know, commons existence. We need to create our own platforms. And and I think that touches on why your work is so important around media imperialism. So I, I should say, I think that for a lot of people listening, you certainly might think that, uh, or have an understanding of, you know, how biased much of the media is, etc. But what you're talking about, I think, is something much more profound, which is the ways in which, you know, the media serves not merely as a kind of tool of imperialism, but as a driver of it itself. And looking at it from a variety of different levels I mean I love the analysis that you have about you know what does it mean when most of the conglomerates are in the West like what does that physically mean for instance right um, to actually the information being provided etc so I'd be interested kind of you know we, we've talked a lot about socialism etc but you know how do you see what media imperialism is? why are you interested in it and how does it connect to your broader interest in terms of you know, socialism and the radical potentials of social media.
1: Yeah, thanks. Thank you so much. That's, um, I, I, you know, Canada is an interesting place with regard to thinking about, you know, empire and communications and and issues around media and cultural imperialism, you know, given uh, the country's, you know, deep integration historically, you know, first, you know, as a white colonial settler state of the British Empire, and then kind of like as a, (laughs) subsidiary proxy ally of the U.S. empire um, and a middle sort of power or even a new imperial power in its own right in the 21st century. So these sort of concerns about, you know, the role that communications technology plays to, you know, the expansion, maintenance of empire economically, geostrategically, militarily and culturally have have been part of the Canadian communications tradition going back to work by the uh, political economist Harold Adams Innes. Uh, who wrote a book that historicized uh, Empire and Communications by that, that same title. But, you know, my interest, again, in this, this topic does largely um, stem from my experience of the post-9-11 global war on terror, uh, the way that the sort of U.S.-based and globalizing media was, was framing uh, and creating cre- pretexts for, for war in Afghanistan and Iraq and beyond, And I was also, you know, noticing the ways by which many, many, you know, Canadians um, were parroting or repeating propaganda lines that the Bush administration's media apparatus was pumping out through commercial news media organizations. And so I was kind of like, under what conditions of possibility can, you know, people in one country... Come to fully and completely identify with and and reproduce in their hearts and minds the the, the war propaganda line of another country. I mean, it, it's it's fascinating. I mean, uh, today we hear a lot about um, Russia's disinformation campaign, right? I mean, the U.S. has been involved in cross-border and transnational, you know, propaganda and disinformation campaigns for over a hundred years, and you know, it's it's usually just not called, you know propaganda or disinformation, at least in sort of our polite liberal circles these days. And so I was, I was really, you know, becoming increasingly interested in these kinds of questions during my my participation in the anti war movement. And um, so I started researching that again, um, when writing my dissertation, the state of cultural imperialism, um, which ultimately led to the publication of uh, a book called hearts and minds, the US empires culture industry. Um, in a more recently co-edited volume called Media Imperialism, Continuity and Change. And um, I learned a lot from uh, Herbert Schiller, um, who was, the, you know, U.S.'s premier political economist of empire and communications. Um, Schiller, you know, wrote sort of the, the great book, um, Mass Communications and American Empire, um, and another, a number of other works um, on this topic. But then again, in like sort of the 80s and 90s was largely you know, relegated to the margins of, of liberal communication studies, seen as a bit of a dinosaur or irrelevant. And it was only in the aftermath of um, the 9-11 terrorist attacks that the questions of empire were put back on the scholarly agenda. Um, and I saw that sort of largely as, as, as an opening for rethinking and reviving some of Schiller's foundational contributions, but then also updating them for new times. And so I, I kind of, you know, I basically argue that that the state corporate project um, of, of media imperialism is advanced uh, materially and ideologically by a symbiotic relationship between the media agencies of the U.S. state, um, the security state in particular, which strive to win consent to dominant ideas about the American way of life and foreign policy around the world. And the corporations of the US-based but globalizing cultural media industries, which seek to make money by producing and selling media and cultural goods to consumers in global markets. And so I'm trying to think through contemporary media imperialism as a bit of a convergence of, you know, the geopolitical imperatives and priorities of the state. Um, and the sort of international or global economic priorities and imperatives of of US-based globalizing media and cultural capital. And it's kind of like the intertwining of those two sort of organizational or institutional entities um, and at least a sort of symbiotic sort of relationships that that, that support this process. Um, But I try to do so without sort of any kind of conspiratorial implications um, these are relations between the state and capital that can be uh, observed, analyzed uh, historically, institutionally, even with regard to policy. Um, and again, it, it's not like there's sort of like you know a, a bunch of politicians and CEOs you know sitting behind closed doors and you know conspiring to manipulate. A lot of this stuff is out o- in the open. Um, I mean, a, a great example of this is the relationship between the U.S. Department of Defense's uh, Entertainment Liaison Office. And, and Hollywood going back a hundred years. Um, you know, a, a lot of my research um, articles over the past uh, five, six years or so have just been on that relationship. Um, like the DOD's role in co-producing, you know, Hollywood blockbuster films such as Iron Man or, or Transformers or even more recently, um, Marvel's uh, Captain, Captain Marvel, um, yeah. so, so, you know these are but but anyway um i think history teaches us that you know the countries with the biggest and most powerful communications and media industries tend to be the most driven to and effective at cultural and media imperialism um so the us is still sort of the dominant media and cultural imperialist um on the planet uh despite its many troubles um uh at the present time uh, i could just if you, if you like i could just even share some updated data about about this if that's useful that
0: would be amazing Definitely. Oh, okay
1: okay so Yeah, yeah. So, okay. Eight of the top ten technology companies in the world are uh, U.S. based and headquartered. Um, So those are Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Google, Intel, IBM, Facebook, Cisco Systems, and Oracle. Um, Only one of the top ten tech companies is is based in China, and that's Tencent Holdings. And so I guess what what I'm sort of trying to suggest here, and I'm going to sort of offer a few more details, is that we often hear a lot about this rivalry between the United States and China when it comes to technology and media and culture. And, and most of the, the research that I've done as of late uh, suggests that it's simply not the case. China, you know, China's media, technology and cultural industries are indeed growing rapidly and rising and even internationalizing. But they're in no way sort of on an equal footing um, as the as the U.S. is in, in this day and age. So. Um, Think about like, you know, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon and Microsoft or, or the GAFAM. They basically rule most of the Internet today, um, presiding over its most significant social media platforms. Um, the the, the GAFAMs market capitalization, scale of operations, user base have grown immensely. They're collectively valued at like five trillion dollars right now. Um, and they influence the global Internet's technological infrastructure, their accumulation logics, their laws, policies and regulations the ideological orientation of the entire digital media environment um, as a whole. I mean, and, yet, and the, the owning class of this company, I mean, it's just, they're, they're just so, so vastly wealthy. It's, it's almost impossible to fathom. But Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg and Microsoft's Bill Gates are worth more than the total GDP of more than half of Africa. Amazon's mm-hmm. Bezos, soon to be the world's first trillionaire, possesses a fortune greater than Morocco's $119 billion GDP and every hour, Bezos takes approximately 315 times the uh, 28,000 median annual pay to to Amazon's workers. And so, I mean, these are just immensely, immensely powerful companies. But, you know, that's just one sector of the overall sort of global communications, media and cultural environment. I mean, the two largest telecommunication companies in the world are the U.S.-based AT&T and Verizon. Uh, The U.S. is home to 14 of the 20 most visited websites, including like uh, Google, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Wikipedia, Netflix, you know, email services like Outlook and Yahoo, photo sharing like Instagram, discussion forums such as Reddit. Um, the U.S. is even home to the most lucrative and global, you know, porn industry with, you know, Pornhub and X Videos being being the largest around the world. Um, we sometimes think of like, you know, the new media as, as sort of, you know, outpacing or outmatching The old media uh, of which hollywood is included but you know when it comes to entertainment the us is also unmatched so hollywood's big five studios as transnationalized as they are um are still the rulers of the global box office um you know in 2019 hollywood's total box office closed out at 42.5 billion which was an all-time high so like hollywood's not in decline uh, the 2019 top-grossing film was Avengers: Endgame. It set over 30 box office records in China, and that's even with China's like film quota. It restricts, uh, you know, um, Hollywood films to 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 a certain number each year. But nonetheless, you still find Hollywood films, you know, topping the Chinese box office. So. Um, the U.S. tech giants also preside over global digital advertising. So Google's the largest digital ad seller in the world, accounting for 31.1 percent of worldwide ad spending in 2019. That's like about one hundred and four billion dollars worth of ad revenue. And Facebook's the next with sixty seven billion in net ad revenues. Um, and then Amazon. And we often don't think of about Amazon as like, you know, a, a, you know, an ad services company. But but amazon's um you know ad sort of sales amounted to fourteen point one billion in two thousand nineteen so so you know these are just like you know concrete sort of i guess empirical data points to to indicate the continuing strength of of u s based media technology and cultural industries companies uh, around the world
0: um, i but- think I think it's very uh interesting too about how you've said things are so transparent I mean everything you've said is really interesting, like we say it as a critique, right? But they're very yeah. proud of this, you yeah. know? I think that's one of the also things that I found very fascinating. So for you know, some of you, you know, I mean, I, I, I recently been doing quite a bit of research on data and power, big data and power. And, you know, all it takes is about like a 15 minute Google search. I'm not saying you have to do like serious research here to realize about 50 to 60 to 70% of what's being purported about Russian interference, etc., is completely either over-exaggerated or made up full cult. Right. Yeah. And this isn't like to justify Putin or Russia, which is, you know, its own hegemonic actor, but, you know, I mean, you know, it's incredible to watch how, you know, the, Ways in which the media has, in the U.S., has completely, particularly the liberal media, you know, fallen for this kind of new red scare. And then you scratch beneath the surface, and as you said, I mean, you you'll see these kind of discussions about an anonymous CIA source. Well, the minute you hear that, you start thinking to yourself, "Okay, (laughs) like this is going to end up not being true," you know. And then you start thinking about what are these interconnections. It's why I find your work about. Well, the same people who are feeding this information, you know, to MSNBC and Rachel Maddow and things are the same people who are also helping to inform and promote like the Avengers movies. So <laughs> these are all connected in a, in a very real way. And, and it, I wonder like, you know, in this age where now it seems like we have so much more transparency, etc., it seems that, you know, and it doesn't take a lot to find these things out. It seems that the right um in quite dangerous ways though is the one who's more skeptical of the media where there's such an obvious need for a leftist rigorous analysis like you do to actually say wait a minute i mean you know you can use whatever term you want but you know the institutions of empire the cia the nsa they are fundamentally using media conglomerates you know to spread corporate-based American empires. And you don't even have to like, you know, do foyer information, like it's, you know, they're proud of it.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I mean, and, I, and one, you're right. I mean, I, you've raised so many interesting points there. And one of the most concerning for me is, is again, as you mentioned, that, that the critique of, I guess, mainstream commercial or corporate media is ever more ferociously coming from the conspiratorial right you know, as opposed to sort of a more principled sort of analytical, you know, left sort of, you know, I mean, we're still doing this analysis, of course, but I'm, I'm speaking more in terms of popular opinion or or proper, mm. popular political movements, because remember, again, in the 90s, again, during, during the sort of, you know, high point of the alternate or anti-globalization protest movements, you know, there was a rich and vibrant and dynamic sort of, you know, cyber left and alternative media sort of, you know, uh development initiatives happening in the US and elsewhere and that always positioned itself against kind of you know the corporate controlled advertising backed you know you know you know security state supported mm. you know media um and that was largely you know the impetus for so many of the vibrant media reform movements um i mean i associated with i mean people like like robert mcchesney you know the eminent political economist of communication in the united states Um, And then what happened, I mean, I think, you know, in in the 2000s, um, especially leading up to to Trump's, you know, taking of the White House was that, you know, Trump started spewing this kind of, you know, critique of the mainstream media that then that assumes that the mainstream media is, in fact, controlled by like radical Marxists and socialists. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's Mm -hmm. very, very dangerous and and just flat out false. Um, So, I think the the other points that you made, like, yeah, I think that we always need to consider the organizational sources um, that are producing and distributing um, information to sort of, you know, mainstream media journalists or organizations. And, you know, we have that ability to sort of just check the sources. And, Unfortunately, I mean, I think the the history of U.S. commercial journalism indicates that far too often with regard to matters of war and peace or national security and insecurity and and, and empire in particular, liberal journalists um, are far too ready just to sort of reproduce the official source information. Um, They say, "Hey, this is coming from the CIA. This is coming from the NSA. This is coming from the DOD. We can't see this information as spun. You know, this this must just be credible, authoritative, reliable. And we're just going to report that, you know. So, for example, the the build up to the 2003 U.S. sort of invasion of Iraq is, is supported by a whole bunch of official sources in conjunction with the mainstream news media. Um, mm. and, and the New York Times a few years later, right, comes out and says, we want to issue apology to the public. I mean, we, we failed miserably to do a responsible job um, of, 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 of covering this war. Um, yeah. but it's always like retroactive apology. It's always like, oops, like, you know, we were manipulated by the DOD's public affairs or propaganda agencies or the Bush administration spin machine or whatnot. And we now we're going to sort of apologize for, for that. We recognize they're wrong, but then it happens over and over again. It's mm. remarkable.
0: And one of the things that, you know, I think makes your work and the, the kind of scholarship you're doing also very telling is that it really gets into, like you said, the political economy of this. So I've been very interested with social media, how people think that it's just almost this, you know invisible thing that doesn't have a carbon footprint for instance or you know since you can't really see it and it's virtual that it's not part of material economic processes Um in a sense you know you see this already with the green new deal which was that everyone is very excited about this quite rightfully but you also have to think about well, what extraction is you know minerals are and resources are needed to sustain some of these renewable energies and how does this play in terms of imperialism i mean for example, it's not surprising that the minute corporations in the United States, in particular in Germany, um, saw that, oh, you know, renewable energy is going to be a big industry, that all of a sudden, you know, the Bolivian center-left president, who they weren't happy with, but they were kind of allowing, uh, wasn't necessary and was completely anti-democratic and a dictator and needed to be overthrown because yeah. Bolivia has, you know, has has these types of resources and minerals. And I think... What I'm interested in, some of your work is like, how do we begin to also allow people to see not just the kinds of ways in which cultural hegemony is made, but the actual very concrete, you know, environmental and economic relationships that are oftentimes made invisible within our new kind of social media world.
1: Yeah, I, I think that there, you know, there there is a, an important shift um, in communications and media studies these days from, you know, focusing sort of on content and, for example, the the messages and the imagery that uh, a film or a TV show or or a website might might circulate to to infrastructure, um, like serious kind of investigation of the actual existing material infrastructures that make the flow and circulation of content, of, of ideas, of symbols, of images, of messages possible. Um, and once we start seeing sort of, you know, all of the media um, that we consume is very much embedded in a material infrastructure um, that relies upon sort of, you know, resources, energy, um, minerals, um, you know, just, just it, 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 it sheds a totally different sort of light um, on, on the media. Uh, one of one of the, the, the earliest contributions to, to this area of the study that, that I'd recommend um, would be greening the media by Richard Maxwell and Toby Miller, um, in, in which they sort of say that we really need to consider um, the environmental and ecological um, you know, costs and consequences of, of the media we produce and consume. Um, And and it's against, again, all of this kind of 90s, you know, cyber libertarian kind of, you know, Ted Talk sponsored, you know, where it's the media is free floating, it's immaterial um, and so on. It's green and they're sort of countering that those arguments like the shift to a fully digital economy will be a much greener, cleaner, uh, Mm. low sort of energy resource intensive economy, um, Mm. which is the case.
0: I think, I mean, and, and that's a really wonderful kind of point. And, and I, it also then brings to, it, I think, some of the kind of last questions that I had, because I think you've also been very thoughtful about this is the ways in which, you know, how can we reimagine digital relations and social media networks operating in a socialist world? And one dynamic that I think is really paradoxical um, that sometimes doesn't get enough press is that ironically, social many socialists and people on the left and progressives have used social media in quite normal capitalist ways, which is, you know, let's get our opinion out and let's get, you know, hits, et cetera. Whereas one of the things that's more under the surface is that corporations and capitalists are actually using social media and digital relations and platforms in incredibly socialist ways, though quite scarily so, for you know, improving their profit. I mean, I don't think people always recognize how much open source problem solving now is becoming a very prevalent part of any multinational uh, corporation, right? Or collaborative advantage. Um, so I was wondering in a sense, how do we work to read to, you know, to use social media in a way that actually both advances the, you know, socialist and progressive struggle, so to speak, but also, you know, re- shows how it can be used as a, you know, space for playing out socialist values of cooperation, mutual aid, um, you know, etc.
1: Yeah, great. I mean, I, I think I do, before trying to answer that, 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 that <laughs> significant question, just maybe speak a little bit more uh, about the limits, as you mentioned, when, 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 when we use these, these, you know, corporate controlled social media platforms to, to impart or receive, you know, I, I, ideas um, that are aligned with our, our worldview, like, you know, when we're logged into using these platforms, we're, we're getting used basically by what Jody Dean long ago conceptualized as communicative capitalism, or what uh, Nick Cernichek recently calls platform capitalism. So like, just think about the sort of, relationship that we enter into the social relations of using social media for socialist communications like we must first consent to the owner's conditions right so when clicking to accept we become the users and we're subject to like facebook's terms of service policies community guidelines um including its right to collect data but everything we say and do logged we'll logged in so i mean a lot of people in the political economy kind of communications have been theorizing this as you know doing a form of unpaid digital labor and functioning as like an exploitable prosumer commodity. Um, So we're literally kind of working for the platforms um, by by being on them, by interacting, by posting, sharing, creating, uh, distributing content. And all of this feeds the data valence model, as as you mentioned earlier, um, which leads into, um, you know, big advertising revenue returns. Um, There's also like, you know, it's it's a risky relationship, right, that we have with these platforms because you know the relationship between you know a user and a platform owner is is kind of authoritarian like it's in no way democratic like platforms are accountable to their shareholders first their advertisers second and their users third mm. um, you know we, we may sort of like you know try to 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 persuade you know uh, you know or conjole one of these platforms to adjust its its policies and, and but it's really not a democratic relationship and and what's even more worrisome is that the the platform capitalism's data valence um you know of us as users or consumers is converging with state surveillance of citizens and so you know what platforms are making socialists more visible to the mainstream you know they are also potentially putting every socialist that uses them in the security state mm-hmm. surveillance crosshairs so like just think of this if like if the socialist left or any kind of sort of left um um, became a serious challenge to the status quo. I mean, the NSA just, you know, needs to turn to social media platforms for a registry of like, who's who, right? And yes, in the past, yes, you'd have exactly. like boots on the ground, kind of like, you know, intelligence officers, infiltrating and immersing themselves in these little groups and organizations and basically reporting back on what's going on. Um, these days, you just have to go to someone's Facebook page, uh, you know?
0: Exactly.
1: <laughs> it's, it's weird. And, and then there's also like questions of equity, right? So, I mean, sometimes when I'm when, and, and, you know, and, and it may be the lack of diversity in a lot of, you know, socialist media production circulation on platforms. Like um, a lot of the leading say, YouTube socialist influencers are young, male, white, they possess socialist cultural capital, um, you know? And so there's a lot of, many people sort of, you know, are, are not sort of being platformed in that same way and maybe experiencing generational or gendered or racial forms of oppression and exclusion um, they, they get sort of replicated on these platforms and and then as you said earlier as well like the labor the labor question i mean the the the, the conditions of work you know in labor in the digital technology and social media industries is is so exploitative um, you know it's just there's a lot of really excellent work being done on that that these days as well and and so that's that's another limitation but I said, back to your question. Sorry, I'm, I'm probably sounding like a bit of a uh, <laughs> downer. No, road. no,
0: it's, it's wonderful. It's fantastic. Um,
1: I, I think that, you know, in terms of imagining alternatives, um,
0: well, actually, you know what? I want to
1: put that back to you because you said some really thoughtful things throughout this interview. And I think before I sort of, you know, add my two cents, I just want to hear more about what you're thinking uh, with regard to how we could, you know, reconfigure, um, you know, or redesign uh, the internet or, or platforms for for more appropriately socialist politics and, and ends, or, or even just ways of being. Um, well, the-
0: wow. uh, you're very good. Like I'm very, uh, you put me on the spot. Though, um, <laughs> so, um, I, I, I mean, I'm, I think that there's a lot of ways that we can think about it. Um, certainly, I think that the kind of movements that are happening around like the collaborative commons, for instance, are really interesting, right? Um, I think that these are ways in which you create platforms that allow people that are not only commonly owned and supported, but actually allow people to connect, learn and, you know, economically recreate their communities together. Um, I think another thing that's quite interesting is using, you know, really strong uh, networks to create transnational supply chains through these technologies that rely on things like digital fabrication and 3D printing, right? So mm-hmm. if you have global design and local manufacturing, um, that's a really powerful way in which you can, you know, put in place anti-capitalist networks using social media. Um, I think another thing that, that's quite uh, interesting is, is the ways in which actually you can have all sorts of resources online that I, I think we've talked about today, that are a mixture between very, very strong um, educational resources and knowledge and kind of, you know, do-it-yourself networks of, you know, well, if you want to establish a shared space or cooperative development in your own community, these are ways in which you can do it. Um, So I think there's a lot of different ways. Um, I don't think it's easy, but these are, I mean, you know, I think that one of the things that I is important is about how these don't become siloed. And also I think, you know, the work that you do is so important because it's you know, we know the technologies that we could have to do some of these things and they're already being used, but we can tend to maybe be too come too optimistic because you know, capitalism and imperialism doesn't like to give up power easily.
1: No. Um, no, and so that I guess that's, I mean, I, I really appreciate your, your thoughtful, you know, proposals. And I think they all have, definitely have a significant role to play in, in, in democratizing um, the Internet and digital technologies. And I mean, given how powerful empire and, and capital, um, you know, are, especially with regard to the actually existing Internet, which, again, is, is pretty much controlled by the GAFAM. Um, save sort of smaller examples, or startup firms, or intermediary firms that, in some way, are reliant upon the ecosystem that the GAFAM presides over. Like, I just wonder what positive role might, you know, the public sector play, or even, you know, for lack of better words, the state play, you know, in in this process of democratizing the internet. I mean. I think it's important to remember that it was the post-war American state that kind of brought the internet into being, like, for issues of, you know, national security, and then much later, capital accumulation. Like, the internet's commercial use was, if I recall, illegal up until 1992, right? And then it was in 94 that it was fully privatized. Um, and, and so, so much public sort of resource, so many sort of public resources were were put into developing the the infrastructural hardware and software of, of the internet. And then basically maybe riffing on David Harvey's notion of accumulation by dispossession, the, the public was like dispossessed of a public internet, which the state on behalf of this emerging digital capitalist class, you know, privatized and marketized and, and commercialized. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I'm just wondering is, is like, might, might we also argue for, for a public internet? Um, might we argue for sort of like an Internet to be reconfigured from its current status as a private surveillance venture beholden to shareholders and ad clients to some kind of public utility for, you know, I don't know, helping democracy realize its potential? Like, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of trying to think about is there a way to take many of the arguments for, say, public broadcasting um, you know, or a public media and, and then sort of make similar you know, cases for the Internet? Of course, there are two different kinds of technology. But but I, I think that that, yeah, I mean, history teaches us how technology initially made for one reason can be remade and reconfigured for another. Mm. You know, technology is never determined, nor is it fully and completely determining. I mean, I'm, I'm not a, a technological determinist. So, mm. um, you know, it's politics, it's power relations that determine technology's design, intended role, application, impact. Mm. Um, I mean, I know I might get into trouble with some of the new materialism and the object-oriented ontology folks when saying that, but um, I think that I would actually probably get them in a little bit of trouble by saying, you're not sufficiently analyzing the political economy that shapes this technology that supposedly mm-hmm. acts on um, and intersects with, with uh,
0: Absolutely. I mean, well, I, I think there's there's two aspects there, right, Tanner? It's like, on the one hand, if you want to get into the more philosophical as- elements of it, it it's... It's a mixture between this kind of political economy and you new know, materialism, which to say that it's about the ways in which people and things are continually rematerialized and reproduced, you know, um, within quite dynamic power relations. Um, and I also think, though, that you're absolutely right. I mean, two things jump out at me at a very basic level in terms of you know how we could actually. Directly engage at this in terms of the political economy level. I mean, the, the one is, um, actually taking a lot of the architecture and infrastructure that you mentioned. So I mean, you look at Amazon. Do you know how easy it would be to nationalize that and use that as something that better allocates, you know, needs for the public good? I mean, they, I don't think, in a sense, you
1: you could continue, please. I mean, this this is this is so exciting.
0: No, but I, I think, you know, I've talked about this with others, but yeah, I mean, you know, in a sense, we've already funded these infrastructures because Amazon didn't build itself. It's all taxpayer money in many ways. So they've created infrastructures for these massive platforms of delivering goods to people and allowing them to do so in a convenient way. And in a sense, they've already, you know, put in place ways about the society of a society of abundance as opposed to lack, right? I mean, you know, it would be very yeah. easy to, to repurpose this for creating, for not only, you know, making this something that's a public utility almost, but it's something that could actually be used, um, you know, to in, efficiently in, in sort of people, ways.
1: Yeah, to, to efficiently, instantaneously, mm-hmm. just in flex time, you know, meet people's actual human and social <laughs> needs. It's like the most efficient distribution and circulation system imaginable, like ever established. And so it's about sort of what goods then sort of are prioritized yeah. in circulation, right? Uh, healthcare,
0: Absolutely.
1: social services, and then, you know, and then sort of make sure that all of that is is universally accessible to, to everybody. Um, mm. and, and that's, again, where I think that, you know, thinking through the kind of community and grassroots and, and innovative strategies that, that I think you initially started thinking through and speaking about, and combining those with these other sort of mm. forms, of, about how this could be public infrastructure, um, committed to allocating you know, you know, public goods that meet human and social needs. That's a really powerful combination.
0: Um, Absolutely. I mean, one other thing that you talked about that I think is really important that doesn't get enough press but should is the actual worker power in this. I mean, on the one hand, I think we've already seen it. It doesn't get enough press, but it's so important. Is you know, workers in the, particularly big tech firms that are finding out that their work is going for, you know, drones or surveillance, et cetera, just saying no. And it also brings to the light the fact that, that, you know, I mean, people always say, you know, they've made so many movies about Steve Jobs, et cetera, but he didn't invent anything. You know, <laughs> it's not that he, he did any serious work in, in, in you know, furthering technological advances. or something. He just figured out how to better marketize and sell, which should be a relatively cheaply to produce free good. Um, and i think that you've already seen this where workers are saying you know wait a minute these executives are asking us to do this they don't know anything about technology they're not the ones making this and we're not going to do it so i think there's that part that's also very exciting and also like you said as we can better account for how much money companies are making off our data i think that there's a way in which we see ourselves as you know consumer digital workers and saying okay, well, you know, we get a a percentage of that. If you want to use our data and you want to capitalize it, you know, that's an employment relation.
1: (laughs) um, I remember there was an art campaign uh, about eight or 10 years ago, you know, wages for Facebook. um, That was mm -hmm. to that issue exactly. And so, yeah, I think that is an interesting sort of political demand, either sort of, you know, you know, pay us for data or alternately create some sort of public fund um where where facebook or google or amazon or twitter or youtube or any of these countries you know allocates immediately a percentage of its ad revenue to some public fund that then also gets allocated to sort of community and social needs or or something like that
0: absolutely which is a really would be a really interesting way of going from kind of you know liberal unionism to kind of cooperative socialism yeah Um, I think, you know, we're going to have to have you back on because I think we could talk for hours. I mean, you were amazing, Tanner. But thank oh, you so much. Another world is possible.
1: Peter, if you don't mind, before we close yeah, up, the other priority I think that we definitely need to continue um, considering and, and pushing for is, is, again, you know, the Internet, computer, hardware, and software, and digital literacy is a universal human right, now, i know like human rights mm. of course, can can be troubling and be used and abused in all kinds of ways for ends not intended by its true believers but you know the fact is is that you know almost everywhere internet access itself is treated as, as a consumer choice not a right right and and telecommunication mm. companies are making billions selling this access as a commodity only to those who can afford it you know while excluding those who cannot so so like and even the, the 60% of the total world population right, is online and, and 40% still doesn't have access. So we, again, we always have to be contextualizing, relating, connecting. I think the arguments that we're making in, in these digitally saturated countries, like you know, the US and Canada um, and elsewhere, um, to the fact that, that there are sort of you know, major inequities um, in access to the internet. And that, that the digital revolution, so to speak, isn't that revolutionary, nor is it encompassing of all of humanity. Um, many people are excluded from this this still so I think like in a properly socialist society access to the internet computer hardware and software and digital literacy skills to to use these goods would be universally and publicly provisioned so I think that I don't know if there's a better way to argue for that you know outside of a rights discourse and maybe Mm -hmm. what are your thoughts Um, just quickly well
0: I I I think that Absolutely, it's a key point. And I think that the ideas of the digital divide is huge. I think it's interesting that the mobile divide is quickly shrinking while the digital divide and digital skills divide remain relatively large. Um, and I think, therefore, it is a matter of international development and a human right. Um, and, and I also think that it's not just access and skills, but the ability to use these to, you know, socially and economically network in order to build up economic and social capital in that way. Yeah. So I think this is all very important. And, and, and I do think that it was interesting how in the Sanders and Corbyn campaigns, for instance, two ones that I, I think you know, are relatively kind of, you know center left progressive, though they would call themselves socialist, yeah. um, which is fine. I mean, that both of them were very clear that we need to treat this as a human right. Yeah, and we need to have free internet access to and something. And, and, and I think it was telling how people under 35 really understood that. And we're like, of course.
1: Of course. Well, right.
0: some of the, yeah, well, some of the, and, and it's, it's also interesting the ways, I mean, I think we could do a history of this, but you know, this kind of process that isn't really talked about. Um, I'm sure there's a great book on it. I just haven't read it, but like how mass media in terms of television went from something that was owned by the public to something that the public could watch for free to mm. something that the public had to pay for. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that there's a similar ways in which, you know, with the internet, you've been kind of seeing this process in which this should be publicly owned. Then it's a kind of sense of, okay, well you, you, you can get it relatively for free. And now you can already see how they're trying to get us to pay for for pay for it in a variety of different ways. And it has to be a human right because it's so instrumental and fundamental to, you know, social and economic inclusion and development.
1: Mm -hmm. And then while also being um, cognizant of the fact that, you know, if the actually existing political economy of the digital tech and media industries, you know, persists as it is without the kind of challenges that we're raising, efforts to close the digital divide will largely... Expand the the power and profitability of the oligopolistic tech titans that currently preside over the internet, so it's like there's a conundrum there. we want to close the digital vibe, but these entities that are sort of best positions to do so and 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 turn a big profit are again the companies that constitute the GAFAM. so it's hmm. it's it's challenging, yeah.
0: I mean, one, one aspect. If you have a couple minutes, because uh, I know we get, this is why we have to have a background. There's so much to talk about. But on that note, just in terms of human rights, and but also thinking about this kind of tech oligarchies, like it's very interesting to me. And even as an economist, so to speak, you know, sometimes to get fully your head around it, is that we hear these things like Jeff Bezos made another 13 billion in one day, right? Yeah. And traditionally, when you think about a CEO even though of much of it can be in stocks, it's still uh, easy to imagine how it's in assets and liquid. Whereas now when we say, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is worth this much or Jeff Bezos is worth this much, it's a little bit like, well, that's just made up because it's a projection oh, of what me. they're worth. So yeah. I was wondering, like previously when you talked about redistribution or reappropriation, it was much easier because liquid, liquidity and wealth was much more concretized. Right? How do we think about this now when it's like Jeff Bezos doesn't actually have 13 billion more that he can take out of his bank today? Mm -hmm. It's just what it's projected for. How do we how do we deal with that as socialists in terms of when we act and think about concrete redistribution policies around tech uh, oligarchs?
1: I know (laughs) a million dollar question. I mean these these are sort of um, complexities that I'm I'm perhaps ill-equipped to 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 address efficiently. But I do yeah. know like um, some of the people that I have worked with in the Socialist Project, such as you know Leo Panitch and Sam Gindin, you know are calling sort of sort you know for for democratizing finance, right? Sort of through mm-hmm. through, through public forms of, of ownership um, and, and and control. But you're right. I mean, this this is all sort of speculative and projected and very difficult to actually. Um, <laughs> mobilize and allocate a certain <laughs> way. Um, so there's something immaterial. I mean, yeah, there is something immaterial. About yeah, and, and, I, and
0: I do think that's why I think one of the reasons I like the work on media imperialism so much is that, you know, among other things, it does help to concretize these power relations because I think that they are oftentimes part of their power, ironically, is how virtual they are and how speculative they are and how that stops us from concretizing you know, their, their materiality oftentimes.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I mean, um, we, we, I, you know, and again, I I'd be happy to chat further about what any of these issues um, at, at your convenience.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Tanner. Like I would say another word is definitely possible and you're a huge part of it. So thanks for coming on. You are amazing.
1: Oh, thank, thank you and it's I mean initiatives like these that I think contribute in such positive and meaningful ways to the sort of rebuilding of uh, a, a socialist or or, or left or digital media ecology that is crucial to um encouraging sort of you know educating you know and also agitating um for for radical social change for the better we'll a life that you You don't get what's left over you until you get forever You, you never get your worth No, you, you never get A life that you You don't get what's left over you We'll work these days forever We works 9 to 5 and she works 5 to 1 We works around the clock and there's no time left for love
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Another World is Potable. My name is Peter Bloom, and remember until next time, another world is not only possible, but happening right now.